Heavenly Father, again, we're so thankful that when we open this book, we have the truth. We don't have opinion. We don't have uh, the imaginations of men. We don't have the writings of scholars in the past that have dreamed up things that they wish were true. But we have the reality. This book is the truth, and the truth means that which is real. It is real from your point of view, Father. And we have the privilege of looking into it and understanding. And so, Father, today as we look into a subject that is uh, something that perhaps we're going to know a lot more of in the coming days, you'd encourage us by these things and remind us, Father, that any price or any, any, any uh, consequences that come from being a believer are a small thing when compared to the suffering that Jesus Christ went through to bring us into the family of God. May we always remember the real price is not any price we'd pay in suffering. The real price was the price he paid in suffering to bring us to God. Bless now in this, in this service, Father, now, and may these things be beneficial to your people, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, the title of our sermon today is, So What Do You Expect? And I think probably none of us would ever volunteer for persecution or for martyrdom or for hatred. And yet... We, we find when you read it, whether we like it or not, whether we recognize it or not, the Fox's Book of Martyrs is written, and it details the horrible fate of Christians from the very early church to the mid-16th century. And these were people who were killed. They were Christians who were killed for only one reason, because they were Christians. And then, uh, and this is, this is something that's just almost unbelievable. When you look at today's world and how, how supposedly civilized we are, you wouldn't expect to see anything like this, but on August 23, 1572, as many as 7,000 Huguenots were killed in France because they were not Roman Catholics. <laughs> and, no, and no one can overlook the Spanish Inquisition. 150,000 people between 1560 and 1700 were killed and many of them were Christians. And most of them were killed for all sorts of reasons. For It was things contradicting the Roman Catholic Church and their doctrine. So we today don't understand what suffering is like some of the early people did. We don't understand what can happen. However, where we live today, we do not yet suffer persecution. Now, in my outline, I have yet, and I, I italicize, which means not yet, <laughs> because... We don't know how long that's going to last. We're living in a time when a lot of the public sentiment that comes out of our government is turned against Christians. And we are, and in some areas, we're considered a, a terrorist group. We're, you know, the, the, the Muslim bombers can come in, and they're not terrorists. But here, we, we're terrorists. So afterwards, I hope none of you would plan on going out and blowing up a delicatessen or anything like that to show your, to show your contempt for the Jews or anybody else. But fortunately, for the most part at the moment, our, our, our society is not paying much attention to the church. And I say fortunately because uh, the only time they seem to notice the church is whenever there's some kind of scandal. If there's a scandal someplace in a church where a pastor or, or a priest in a Catholic church has done something, then everybody notices that they're, that they're out there, that there's Christians out there. But mostly, for the most part at the moment in this country, we're not hated, we're not persecuted. But that's not true all over the world. That's not true everywhere. And so we're very fortunate at this point. So, in this study, we, we, we're looking at something, at the nature of what hatred and persecution are. Now, persecution is time permitting. I, I don't plan on getting to that today because we have a lot to talk about with just what hatred is. But this is something that lies in the future. And, and actually, 
when we look at what hatred is, I think you're going to see that we actually, many of us, have experienced it without realizing that it was called hatred. It was called, it's called something else, but it was not called hatred. So we begin. What hatred is and what hatred is not. Well, if you remember what we read back in John chapter 15, uh, one of the things that I can tell you, and I, I wish this were not the case, but it is true that persecution, or rather than hatred, is pretty much a fact of life. It's not something that's optional. In John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, it's something that's not, it's very, very pointed. Hatred is not something that is, that is optional for the Christian. It just simply says, if the world hates you. It's, it's in, the, in the Greek, if you're, if you're a fan of the Greek language and the grammar, it's what we call a first-class condition, which to most of us doesn't mean anything. What it really is telling us is this is a statement that is true. Since, we, we would really translate that, since the world is hating you. It's a, this is, in other words, it's a statement of fact. He's going to make an application. Since the world is hating you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You hated him first. So it's, it's a, these are what we call indicative. They're just simple statements of fact. Since the world hates, hates you, you know that it hated me first. So in other words, it's not really an option, is it? The world is going to hate the believer. If it hates you, it, you know it hates me. Now, it, it says if the world is hating you, uh, maybe you might think we're going to get by, but as we go through this, you're going to see that at some point, we're probably all going to experience some form of hatred. When we see what hatred is, you, you, it might make it a little, make, a little different in your, in your thinking. Now, the world will hate the Christian because it hated the Savior. Now, I didn't put it in your notes, but I want to go over to John chapter 3 for just a moment. Why did the world hate Jesus? You know, it's, it's a very simple thing. Um, some people just don't like to be shown that they're wrong. Some people will do anything to admit that, to deny that they were wrong, to, to somehow be exonerated for something that they said or did that wasn't quite correct. They, they won't ever admit it. And that's what happens with the world. If you look at John chapter 3, and you might write these in your notes under point number 2, where it simply stated the world will hate the believer because it hated the Savior. Well, here's why it hated the Savior. I put that point in there, and I realized I should have put this verse in there too. So if you want to handwrite in John three eighteen through 21, right below point number two. Because when you look at what it says, it tells you why did the world hate the Savior? Now this is John's commentary, and the Apostle John does some remarkable things in his gospel. We'll talk about a few of them as we go through, and I've really enjoyed the study of the gospel of John. John does something more than anyone else. He does a lot of what we call author interpretation. He will say some things, and then he will interpret what it means. Well, for example, before you go to John, John chapter three, uh, you can see it in John chapter 7. I just, just to show you, as long as I'm going to say that, I should show you an example. In John chapter 7, you'll find out that there is author interpretation where Jesus will say something and John will put in a statement and sometimes it's not as clear as this. This one in John chapter 7 is very clear that it's John's interpretation. In John chapter 7, verse 39. Now, Jesus has just said in verse 38... He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Then you notice it says, But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that should believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus, Jesus was not yet glorified. But you notice, but he spoke this. In other words, John is, John is telling you something about this. 
This was something anticipatory. So John's saying he was speaking about the Holy Spirit that they would receive. So this is so John does this, and so when you get to John chapter three, I believe beginning at verse sixteen and beyond to the end of the chapter, the apostle John is interpreting and telling you what what this meant, what was involved with what Jesus had been saying, and in, in the process of saying that, he says in John three verse eighteen, he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For, or because, if you please, for everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they were wrought in God. So there you see it. Why do, why do they hate Jesus? Because like light, you know, it's just kind of almost, if you've ever gone into a room and you switched on a light, that maybe this is a room you haven't used in a while, and all of a sudden you hear the scurrying sound. You turn on the light and you see these bugs running. Well, the bugs run when the light comes on. You know, and so it's kind of the same feeling here, is that when Jesus shined the light of what he was like, he, all he had to do was act the way he acted. And that was enough because he was acting the way they knew they should have acted. And, these, and, and you, we, we don't understand this because we've been believers for a while maybe, but the world doesn't want to be told they're wrong. They don't want to be told they're wrong. They might even know they're wrong. And that's really what you see here because it says, it says less is, uh, verse 20, it says that they don't come to the light lest their deeds be reproved. That word reproved is a word that can be translated and is translated other places as convicted. They will be convicted that they're wrong. And they don't want to be convicted. They do not want to be told they're wrong. And if you think I'm exaggerating, you go out there to some of those protesters that are out there that are picketing because of that decision on abortion and ask them, is it all right to murder babies? Oh, no, they won't do that. Do you know what they do? you know what they've done? They have, in, in abortionist thinking, they, they talk about a fetus. A fetus. Now, what is a fetus? A fetus is an unborn living being. Now, it depends on what the mother is as to what that being is going to be. Well, I don't think they have any question about the women being animals, do they? But, so the woman is carrying a fetus. It's not a human being. Well, then pray tell what is it going to be. If you've ever seen anybody taking DNA samples out of an unborn child, they can tell you what gender that child is. Not one of the 75 different genders, just one of the two that actually exists. Yeah, 75 different genders. Uh, who knows how many there will be? By the way, the, it's one of the military branches now is going to persecute or going to discipline officers or soldier members of the, whether it's, I forget what group it was. And, and they will, if you don't use the right pronoun about somebody. So if somebody thinks it's their thing. Be considered slanderous. Yes, so. So in other words, if someone thinks they're a thang, I remember years ago my dad used to say when, they, when the hippie movement first came out and he couldn't tell whether it was a guy or a woman, the guys he worked with all said, those were thangs. <laughs> they didn't know what they were, they were thang. <laughs> I never forgot that. So, the, so someone says, they're a thang, you better not call them anything else, you could get in trouble. Unbelievable. They can insult you or I, but boy, you get somebody that's, that's a deviant and you, tell, and you don't want to call them a deviant. You have a government actually making that laws to protect and punish those who don't agree. 
Did, did you notice, by the way, has anybody noticed besides me that I've seen the billboards up on, a, on the sideways says it's okay to say gay? You see what they're trying to do to this country? They're trying to shove it down everybody's throat. They can't get it by legislation because the people won't take it. They can't find a court that'll make some kind of decision. So they're just going to put it out in billboards. They're going to push it to people and just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it with the thought that we're going to eventually accept it. Well, folks, let me go on record as saying I'm never going to accept it. It's going to be wrong. It's deviance. That this homosexuality, lesbian, all this stuff. There's, there's, I know they're getting to be protected, but I mean, the day that they come in and demand a gunpoint, that we admit that. You should be talking to them about saving their souls, is what I'm saying. Yeah. We should not be protecting them under a lifestyle that's an abomination. They should be approaching them with, with the truth. Well, yeah, that would be that would be very helpful if they did that. But unfortunately, our government is not likely to do that. But anyway, so you see from John chapter 3, why does the world hate the, the Savior? Because his very life itself, he didn't, all he had to do was just show up and talk and just do the things he did, his normal way of life, and it reproved what they were because they could see in him what they knew they should have been. But they don't want to admit it. Now that's the funny thing. When you, when you share the gospel with someone and they, they're faced up with the fact that they're a sinner, they're not going to want to admit that. They want to say anything. They want to say, oh, it's an error, it's a mistake. It's a sickness. A drunk is not sick. A drunk is a drunk, for heaven's sake. Oh, he's not sick. Well, if he's sick, then he can pass it off. He's not responsible. He doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. I'm sorry. He is. So, looking back at our notes then, the reason for the hatred for the believer is pretty much simple. Looking back, going back to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Why is the world going to hate, hate the believer? Well, it's because we're not part of the world system. We don't dance to their tune. We don't play their game. It says in verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of this world, but I've chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. It's that simple. The world hates us because we're not part of the world system. You know, it's interesting that in, in the Gospels, Jesus himself said, he used an illustration, he says, we've danced for you and you haven't followed us. We played the pipe for you and you didn't get in the, the act. They wanted Jesus, to, when Jesus came, they would have accepted him if he would have played their game, if he would have acted like they did. And the world has the same attitude towards us. So we're, we're taken out of the world and we're we've been chosen, we've been sanctified by the one they hate, so in other words, we're different, and the world hates anyone that is different from it. Now, hold your finger in John 15. I want you to go over to 1 Peter 4 for just a second. Uh, this is what the world likes. And, and Peter said this, and, and I've often been intrigued by this, because uh, the world looks at us, and they really do think that we're weird. They really do, because it'll make it clear that they think that we're really strange because we don't join in, in with them. And it says that in 1 Peter chapter 4, and it's, it's really surprising in a way. But I guess it shouldn't be as you live a long time. You see it happen, and, and when you see Scripture, you realize, yeah, it, God said it was going to happen. Beginning at verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 4. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now notice what he says, for. That little word for. On our Saturday Bible class, we brought out that that word is actually a word that means because. And it's an explanatory word. And so verse, verse four, 3 says, because 
the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Now notice verse 4. This is the interesting part. Wherein they think it strange. They think it foreign. They think it strange that you run out with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. Because you don't go along with them. They'll speak evil of you. They'll say things that lack in character. It's not, they won't be telling the truth. They'll just say those things. Why? Because you're not part of the world. They're going to hate you because you don't act like the world. Now, this next section here, I, I almost put this in tongue-in-cheek. There is a way that it may be possible for the believer to avoid the world's hatred. And let's go over to, to James chapter 4 and see it for just a moment. Now, I, I would rather not be hated by anybody particularly. I, I don't really have a desire to make enemies and be hated. But uh, here's the only way out of it, and so I don't want this. So I guess I'm <laughs> my only other option is just to go ahead and be hated. Because this is, this is odd, but this is... Uh, it sounds strange, but it's actually probably true. He says John, in James chapter 4, the first four verses, From whence comes wars and fightings from among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? So we have individuals that are dealing with their lusts, and they're giving into them because it says, You lust and you have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. Oh, interesting. If you ever found yourself wondering why something got, didn't happen in your life and you said, oh, wait a minute, I never asked God to help me with that. Now, that, that, that does happen. It says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, this is talking to believers. Now, this is the first epistle written. And it's talking about these people being adulterers and adulteresses. He's talking about a spiritual condition where they are living like they're unsaved. This is what Paul calls carnal. In 1 Corinthians 3, you can read about it there. And these individuals are carnal. They are no longer acting as though they're believers. They're acting as though they're friends with the world because it says friendship with the world. Friendship with the world? Yeah, friendship with the world. Their value is what they want. And it says, it says, therefore, who will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, the word for is, it's an unusual word. It's really not the standard word for is. It's the word we get cathedral from. It's interestingly enough, it's, we get the word for cathedral. And it's the idea to set something up in a magnificent, in a big showy fashion. So it says, whoever sets themselves up to be a friend of the world, or whoever's a friend of the world is setting themselves up to be the enemy of, like they're the enemy of God. Now, it's not that you're an enemy of God, but you're acting like you are. And, but you find that that's what the world does. The world is an enemy of God. The world, if you think that's, that's extreme, then look back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, because this is how the world thinks of God. Now, it's interesting to note that God never says he's an enemy to the man, but mankind thinks that they're an enemy to him. Romans chapter 5, just one verse. This fifth chapter is just a fascinating chapter to go through. It says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now it says, For if when we were enemies, does it say God was our enemy? No, it says we were enemies. In other words, we were his enemy. We regarded him as though he were someone to be fought against or overcome and it was somebody that was against us. So, in light of, and so then in light of, uh, 
James chapter 4, if, I wanted, if you wanted to completely avoid the world's hatred when we see what it is, the only way you could do it is to be carnal. No, <laughs> you notice the last thing I said on the bottom of page one of our notes, a very strange thought but true. That's a very strange thought because I wouldn't recommend that to anybody to be carnal. So when I put this in originally and, and I thought of it as more of a tongue-in-cheek thing, it's like, well, if you really want to get out of it, here's one way, but who wants to be carnal? Who wants to act like that? Well, so top of the next page. It's only when a carnal Christian admits that he or she is a believer, the world will begin to hold them in contempt. So, well, this is one way you could escape it. That's the only way I know of. So in other words, we don't have an option if we're going to be spiritual believers. If we're going to live the life that God wants us to live, it says the world hated Christ. If they hated Christ, it's going to hate us too for the same reason. Now, here's where we get down into problems. Now, uh, I'm, I'm a great believer in word studies, and so I know sometimes it may seem like when we do these things, we're splitting hairs or we're getting into stuff, but you know, if there's more than one word used for something, there must be a difference for it. My favorite illustration is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, we were dead in trespasses and sins prior to our salvation. Now, if trespasses meant the same thing as sins, why would Paul have had to say trespasses and sins? He would have just said sins, wouldn't he? So if there's two different words, there should be a distinction between them. And if we want to understand the Bible, we need to look at those words. And so this is not an academic exercise I want to go through. But there are two major words for hatred that are used in the New Testament. And I want to take a quick look at both of them so you can see the difference because you'll see which one of those actually applies to the church. Now, there's two words. And the problem with those two words, they're both translated uniformly hate. And we have another problem, too. You'll notice that I put it in our notes. In the modern usage of the word hate, we can use that to, to refer to anything from the dislike of broccoli, amen, I, I, hate, I hate broccoli, <clears throat> uh, to, to the active desire to destroy another person. Now, you've heard, you know, children say that all the time. Oh, I don't want to eat that. I hate that. Well, they don't really mean, you know, they're not going to get an axe out and chop up the broccoli on the dinner plate with a fire axe, you know, because they hate it. No, they're not going to do that, but they just mean they don't like it. So the thing you'll notice here is, you'll notice I put in bold font, we need to be careful not to read the modern English usage of hate back into the Bible. Because really, American English can be a very sloppy and imprecise language. And the Greek New Testament is not that way, which is one of the interesting facts that we have a problem because we'll read things back. And, and that refers not only to this word hate. We do that all the time and if we're not careful. If, for example, we read how love is used today and we read that back into the Bible, are we going to get an actual picture of the love of God? Because what they call love today is, uh, well, it's almost anything you want it to be. It's tolerance. It's, it's, it's lack of discernment. It's putting up with anything. It's wrong. It's getting mushy feelings for someone. And even though they're doing wrong, you say, oh, well, I still love them. No, no, that's not what love is. But if we read back the usage of uh, modern usage of love in the scripture, we could come up with that conclusion. So the problem is that these two words are both translated hate, and by reading just the English only, you can't really tell the difference. Now, you'll notice in here, I have put, after these words, they're gonna, there's going to be a number, G, one of them has G2189, the other one has G3404, and the reason they're in there, those are Strong's numbers, and if you haven't ever used eSword, this is, this is a tool for using eSword. You can go into eSword, and you can go to King James Plus and put this number, G3104, G2189, and click on search, and it'll bring up every place it's found in the New Testament. You can see all the uses of it and how it's translated. And so that's a tool. So it's in here. If you want to study, this will give you the ammunition. And if you, if you don't have eSword, 
uh, you ought to consider getting it. It has a wonderful price tag on it, free. <laughs> and anything is free, if, even if it's a common cold, I'll probably take it. Well, maybe not the common cold, but eSword is a free, and it's a wonderful p tool. So one of these two words, it's, called, it's translated hate, is going to be much stronger, and, in, and it, it denotes an intense hostility that may strike out at an object. Now, this, this hostility is identified, this particular word is found in Galatians 5.20. It's a work of the flesh. In Galatians 5.20, you don't need to turn there, but it's the third word in, and it's translated hatred. The works of the flesh, one of them is hatred. It's this particular form of the word. Now, this shows you what humans are like, because I know people like to say, and, and some churches like to teach it, how everybody's good, we're all, it's the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and we're all these noble, decent creatures. Well, when you see what hatred is, you might think that we're not quite so noble as a, as a species, and we really aren't. Now, this word, hatred, and I have given you the number there, and you can even see the Greek word for those who want to see it. It's ekthra, and it's G2189. Now, if you go back to Matthew chapter uh, 2013 with me, we can see this word, and we can see what it means by how it's used. And this is how I, I do word studies. I go and I look for a place where I see how a word is used and you can see something definitive about the qualities. And there's no question in this particular verse or this particular passage, you can see that this is a word which is a violent type of hatred which will strike out and will destroy and do whatever, whatever damage it can. And it's really driven very strongly to do that. Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to go beginning at verse 24, and we're just going to read a couple verses down through here. It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared all the tares also. And the servants of the household, so the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, Didst thou not plant good, sow good seed in thy field? From whence has it tares? He said, An enemy has done this. His servant said, Will you then go that we gather them up? And of course, then he said not to do that. Now, why are we here? Well, that word in verse, you, that you have in verse 25 and in verse 28, enemy, is this stronger word. And you can see what it's like. It's a hatred that shows a great deal of hostility. Now consider for a moment what is, what's involved here. This man spent all the time and effort to sow, this, to sow his, this neighbor's field. He took his time out to go out and sow seed in that field to bring up weeds. He took a lot of time, a lot of effort. That would not have been an easy job. And you'll notice it says, while men slept. This guy's hatred, was this, the hatred of this individual was so strong, that enemy, it's a word that can be translated. It's a hatred, a hated one, or his enemy. It was so strong that he would go out at night and do this. Now, I don't know about you, but if you go out into a field in the dark at night, can you see what you're doing? How hard would it be to sow a field with seed by hand in the dark? Would that be an easy job? No, someone that had that degree, someone that was, had that kind of determination, that's what you call hatred. That's the kind of hatred that will destroy. He was willing to destroy a man's livelihood. Now, for all he knew, that man may have needed that crop desperately to pay his bills. That this, his enemy didn't care. He was going to destroy this man's livelihood. He was going to destroy him in any way that he could. So much so that he would do it at night. Now that is a word that uh, it's a violent, I put in, in, in your notes, 
That's what this hatred is like. It's a violent hostility towards something or someone that can strike out and cause untold damage. That's this word that's, that I have in here. It's G2189. It's ekthra, hatred. This word for hatred is not the word that's used in John 15. Now, you might be surprised. You might have expected that it was. And, and had, had I not read this and studied this through myself, I might have expected that this would be the word that's used toward the believer. But it really isn't that. It isn't that at all. Now, our reason for looking at this word is to show that it's not used in John 15, but to point out the fact that violent hostility, most of the time, at least in our culture, is not something that you're going to see towards Christians. It's not going to happen very often. Very, very seldom happens. Now, I guess since we got some of our, our friends from the Middle East that are, that are Muslim in here, they've done some killing of Christians, but up to the, you know, showing this kind of hatred, but up to, up to that point, we haven't seen much of that in our society. Now, we're not saying that the world doesn't have some type of bad feelings toward the Christians, and we're not saying that some parts of the world, they don't have this kind of hatred toward Christians. But what we're saying is that's not the normal reaction that Scripture paints for us. Scripture doesn't say that's going to happen. It does happen, but it's not a guarantee. This is a guarantee. The one that's a guarantee is this one here. Now, you'll notice I put down here at the bottom at, right, at point number F, and this is important. Why do I do things like I do? Why do I spend time making distinctions between words? Well, here's the reason I do it. It's because our belief that every word of Scripture is inspired by God I believe we need to make distinctions between words. If we really want to understand the Bible, there are distinctions that we need to make between words sometimes. In this particular case, if you don't see the difference between these two words for hate, you might come away thinking that the hate that would cause somebody to go out in the dark at night and sow someone's field to destroy that whole man's livelihood, you might think that's the same kind of hatred that's guaranteed to the Christian. Well, I, I hope it isn't, <laughs> because it's, it isn't in Scripture. I'm sure glad it's not. So... The word for hate that Jesus spoke in Scripture is a much different word. And I ha I've given you the number there. You can, if you use, it's used quite a few times in the, in the New Testament, from the Gospels all the way through, and it's G3404, Miseo is the way it's pronounced. And if you go to the top, the top of the next page, I've given you my, my definition of it, and, and there's an anecdotal story that goes along with this, this definition. But I define this particular word as a deep contempt that wishes this object would just shut up and go away when it's used of another person. It's a contempt wishes to shut up and go away. Now, the anecdotal story I had of this is I was sharing this with a friend that I had back in Oregon, a good friend of mine that we had done things together in, in Christian ministry, and I was sharing this to him, and I said, this is my definition of the word. And he had his phone on speakerphone, and his wife was in the background, and she heard this definition to shut up and go away, and she, she piped up right then, and said, that's exactly what's happened to me. Now, she was in a, in a crafting group, and she's a very talented lady. She can do, make crafts almost. Uh, Andrew would, could tell you more about it, but, but you know how Liz is with that. She's very talented. And in this group that she was part of, she and another lady were Christians, and they would sit together and talk about things of the Lord. And she found out one time, she overheard that behind her back, they were saying, oh, I wish they'd just shut up and get out of here. She said that actually happened to her. They said they wished that she would just shut up and go away. And so that's this word, is contempt. Now, you, you'll see this. You'll see this in, in, in the workplace. If you work, you'll see this in life. You, you might be someplace in a job, and there might be an individual there, and everybody in the group just says, "Hi, good morning, Jim." Shut guy. Oh, I wish I just fire him and get rid of him. You've seen that people. Hi, good to see you. 
behind their back and they're sticking knives. Or it may have happened to you. It's happened to me where I was at different times for different reasons. Unfortunately, some of them dealt with my carnality at the time, but people can do that. They, this is a word they would have people say, good to see you this morning. How are you doing? And back, get rid of this guy. So it's, it's, it, the, the two key functions about this word are that it expresses a desire for the object to go away, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do something violent to that person. You may not ever do anything violent. You could, uh, and, and in the workplace, there have been people that have worked together for years, and you find out that there'll be a whole group of them, and there'll be one person that they'll absolutely have. They'll have him utter contempt. They can't stand that person. But they'll smile and be friendly to the face because they have to because they work together. But they'll never do anything about it. So, uh, and it's interesting, too, that now this word is not a work of the flesh. Now, point number two is important. This is not a work of the flesh. This particular form of hate is not something that comes out of our old fallen nature. It's, it's a word that can be used in a good way and, a, and in a bad way, which is interesting because the other word for hatred is never used except as a bad thing. But this word can be used in a good way, holding something in contempt. Well, we can see that. Let's see. So that we have some, I have two references I picked out here. If you go over to Matthew chapter 7, here is one of, the, one of the really important moments in Paul's life. If you trace Paul's uh, history through the book of Acts, you'll find that at the end of the 8th chapter, Paul was sent home to Tarshish, his hometown. And it was sometime three or four chapters later, about 10 years later, somebody came up and got him. Barnabas came and brought Paul back and got him active in teaching. So for about seven to ten years, Paul didn't do anything. He went home to Tarshish. There was never a church founded in the city of Tarshish. There was no church there. He didn't do anything. But what he did when he went back there, you find part of it in chapter 7. He went back, and because he had such a terrible time, every time he preached, people wanted to kill him. He went back home and says, that's enough of this. I'm going to go back and be a Jew again. And that's what he really did. You can see it. And if you read it, and, and it's really something in, in, the, in the book of Acts, if you look at the 8th chapter, after he got saved, he preached at Damascus. They wanted to kill him. He went to Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him. In fact, when they sent him home from Jerusalem at the end of the 8th chapter, or not 8th chapter, end of, the, I think nine, end of the ninth chapter, there was peace for the church. He stirred up so much trouble that when he left, there was peace for the whole church. Now, I guess that's called making you, leaving your mark, but <laughs> I don't think I'd want to leave that kind. So Paul, in his own life, he spent time learning this. And what Paul writes in this chapter is it's good that he wrote it because it tells me something. I don't have to go through this. Paul tried to live by the law. Now, I wouldn't try to live by a law like the law of Moses. No, I'd make up my own rules, my own spiritual. I'll do this and I'll be spiritual. I'll do that and I'll be a spiritual. You know what I'll find out? Well, I'll find out exactly what Paul said in chapter 7 of Romans and verse 15. For that which I allow not, that I do, that I would. That which I do... But what I that I do not. Let's see. Well, let me try that again. For that which I do allow not, for that which I would, I, that I do, I do that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. That's a tough way. That's that's tough. In other words, Paul is saying he wouldn't do the things he should. And he would. He was in this case. He's talking about the law. He went back and he tried to live under the law. And he tells you that a little bit further down into the context. He says in verse seven. He's already said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's talking about the law of Moses. But he'd gone back, and he was a defeated man, and he went back to home to Tarshish. And uh, during this time, he went back to living like a Jew. 
and he found out he couldn't do it. He couldn't keep the law because you, you go down through here, you look at verse 19. This is an easier one to see. He says, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, this is this man's life. He said he couldn't do that. But the reason we're here is not to show you uh, that much about Paul's life, although it does tell you a great deal. He learned the hard way. So he, he knew when he, was, when he was telling people you have to walk by means of the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of flesh, he knew all about it. He had tried it from, on his own for all this time. And you see here, he learned you can't do it. So when he's going to say in Galatians, you walk by means of the Spirit, he knows what he's talking about. He's gone through it. He's tried himself over and over, and he's found out he can't do it. But now you'll notice what he says in here. He said, I, he, he found that he couldn't do things in his own strength, and he was doing things that he hated. Now, if you put that in, into a modern or into a different use, you take our definition. My one-word definition for this, for this word hate is just contempt. That which he held in contempt were things, those things he found contemptible, disgusting, awful. Disgusting is, a, is, is one of the stronger terms I can think of. Something that's disgusting is making you look, ah. He found himself doing that. Now, this is a use of word which is good. I would, I would hope that every time, we, if you look at the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, and it's there. You know, it's, it's no mystery about what, human, what will human nature do if, you, if a person is not saved. Do you want to know what it will do? Look at Galatians 5 and see what it says the works of the flesh are. One of those words is that violent word, violent hatred. Another word is murder. Mm. Human nature, murder. Oh, you don't have to go very far to see that's true. Drunkenness. Oh, you see, the, those are things human nature will produce. And Paul found that he was willing to go back and do some of the things that he wouldn't want to do. The works of the flesh. He found them to be disgusting. He held them in contempt. Now, quite honestly, I hope every one of us can look at the works of the flesh and find them to be disgusting. I hope you can. I hope you look at them and say, yeah, hold them in contempt. I have no desire with I want nothing to do with those things. They're contemptible. They're disgusting. And so you can see this word is used in a good sense. He, Paul found his, his old nature, the things it would do to be disgusting. But now I want you to look at Matthew chapter 6 because this is the passage for me as I did it. I think this is the key passage to understand the distinctiveness of this word and how it means you hold something in contempt. Because it's going to be paralleled. And, and this is, of course, now this is, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not for us to practice, but it does show us what this word means. And so this word is important to understand. It's here for our benefit. And I think you can see it better here than anywhere else. It says... Um, be, uh, Romans, uh, Matthew six twenty four, isn't it? I have that. I mean, it should be that. Yeah, no man can serve. Matthew six twenty four. No man can serve two masters. Now notice, he's going to set up. He's going to set up a dualism here. For either we will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Okay, so you notice he has a pair. He says he has hate and love, despise and hold. Now, love before the day of Pentecost, love before Jesus changed the meaning of it. In John 13, you find out that Jesus said, now you love like I have loved. Jesus gave a new definition to love. Love now, since the day of Pentecost, for the Christian, the love of God is an unselfish love. God, God loved the world unselfishly when he sent Christ. But before that time, this word for love was not so clearly that way. It just meant a strong desire for something. And it involved a sense of loyalty. So on one hand, he says, 
He says he will either hate and have loyalty to one. So what would be the opposite of having loyalty to somebody? Wouldn't it be despising them? Mm -hmm. He'd be despising them. You see how clear that is? And the other one is he'll hold to one. He'll have, he'll have his loyalty to one. And it says he'll despise the other. Now you'll notice I put in despise is something that's regards it is when you would count something to have little value. Something that's despised is kind of cheap. It's insignificant. It's just not even worth worrying about. So here you have the idea that when it comes to, to God and wealth and possessions and so forth, some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. <laughs> you can't serve God and mammon. You can't have both of those. And so you have the thought that this word, it's the opposite of love. If love involves loyalty and compassion, feeling for something, the opposite of that is going to be contempt. You'll still be around that person, but you aren't going to think too much of them. You're going to, you're going to wish to just go away. And so I believe that's the strength of this word. When you look at it here, if you read this thing and think about it, it's the only way you can understand it. He'll either be loyal to him or hold him in contempt. He'll either count him to have some value or he'll count him to be worthless. So, that is the word that you find back in John chapter 15. That is the word that is here. Now, really, when I think of it, I look at it as being, first of all, something of a, of re, of a reassurance. Because if, if the world does hate me, I know, that, I know the scripture said it would happen. No, it's not something that I did wrong, in other words. So if the world hates you, and if the world holds you, if you find people that are unsaved, hold you in contempt behind your back, and you find out about it, don't be surprised. It actually should be a little bit of a reassurance, because scripture said it's going to happen. So it's not that you did something wrong, it's probably that you did something right. If you're a spiritual believer, that's probably the reason that you're going to get hated. People are going to hold you in contempt, because you're not going to do what they want to do. I know, I know what can happen. I know I worked years ago when I worked in a warehouse and, and when I was going through seminary, guys wanted to stop off and have a few brews after work, go into the, the bars. I wouldn't go with them. I wonder what they said about me because of it. I don't think it was anything nice. I could tell that there was a difference in attitude. They just didn't seem to like it. I wouldn't do it with them. I was doing the right thing, wasn't I? I think I was. But probably. So this is a little bit of reassurance. And it's something of a warning, too, because we're going to find that we're held in contempt. Now, if Jesus said that the world held him in contempt, isn't it fair that we should ask, show us the example, show us where that happened? And I'm glad you asked that question, because we're going to turn to consider some examples where Jesus was held in contempt by other people, and it's going to be clearly identified. And we want to start by going to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, you have an unusual set circumstance. You would think that Jesus being the oldest of, the, uh, oldest of his family, the oldest boy, the firstborn child, usually the other kids in the family, uh, they may have some butting of the head, some they don't like it, but they usually will knuckle under, and he's usually the one they look up to. But not in Jesus' family, because his, it's... Uh, Let's see. Beginning, let's begin, uh, well, well, let's read beginning at verse 1 of John 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry or Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> There's more than just a little bit of hatred here. Right there tells you something's not right. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. 
His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that your disciples may see your works that you are doing. For there is no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Why? Because neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time has not yet come, but your time is already. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. So you can see right off the very bad, it says he was hated. And at this point, he'd already stopped walking in Judea. He was in Galilee, the northern province, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, this happened somewhat later in his ministry because in the Gospel of John, one of the unique things you have, and uh, you might want to make a note of this, how do you know that Jesus had a three-year ministry, by the way? You know how you found that out? The Gospel of John tells you that. Because in John, here's, here's some references. You ought to have these just for your own benefit. John 2.23, that's the first time there's a, there's a Passover mentioned. And it's going to be in terms of Passovers. You're going to have three Passovers in John, which show you it's got to be at least three years, plus there's a little time before that that you find in the first part of John. You won't find that anywhere else. So John chapter 2, verse 23. And I did a lot of work on trying to do my own harmony of the Gospels. And boy, you can only go so far, and there's just, you can go to a certain point, and there's just, that's it. And then I will actually look to see if anybody else had done it, and the, the so-called scholars got as far as I did. So I don't know if, I, if they're bad or if I'm good. I don't know which, but you can only go so far. But the first Passover in John is in John 2.23. The second one is in John 6.4. And the last one is in John 13.1. Now the reason that's important is because if you want to know at what point Jesus did things during his ministry, you can't tell from Matthew or Luke or Mark very well. But you can correlate many of the events with the Gospel of John. For example, the feeding of the 5,000. Do you know where that happened in his ministry? Well, you go to John 6. It happened just before the beginning of his last year of ministry. It's at the end of his second year of ministry, at the beginning of his final year of ministry. Now, that may not change anything, but on the other hand, it does change something. If you understand what was going on, you begin to get a better picture of Christ's ministry and the things that happened, and what he said when he said those things. So, it's, it's fascinating because in John 7, you have, you'll notice therefore that John 7, verse 7, this is into his, the final year of his ministry. And it's at the feast, and it's at the feast of tabernacles, which is the seventh month. So this is like, this event where Jesus is speaking in John 7, therefore, is about two and a half years into his ministry. Now, I know, I realize that doesn't change anything, but it's, I think it's worth knowing some of the things that are in the Gospels because John's Gospel gives you the opportunity to, to pick the times and see the places. So this is about two and a half years into the ministry. And so, now you know something about it. And so, Jesus is here, and now he said that the world already is hating him. Now, this is two and a half years. This is the top of page four in our notes, if you're, if you're following in the notes. So, the John 7, 2, 7, 2 this event took place, the Feast of Tabernacles, six years after the second Passover, which is two and a half years, so it's within six months of his crucifixion. Now, you wouldn't know that without John. You wouldn't know that, this event, and you wouldn't know where the feeding of the 5,000 occurs exactly. You know it occurs somewhere, but it's really not clear in the other three Gospels. But it is clear here. Now, however, one thing that's important to note, it says that the Jews were seeking to kill him, in verse 1, and he said the world hated him. But you know, that wasn't something that just happened two year and a half years in the ministry. I know now, if you're like me, 
the way it used to be is I always thought that it was right up near the very end. Maybe it was when Jesus was there with Pilate and Pilate was trying to get the Jews to take him instead of Barabbas. He was going to release somebody by tradition, uh, release a criminal. He was, and he, I always thought, well, that's when they decided they really hated him. Uh, you know what? I don't think so. Because if you look back in the Gospel of John, you're going to find out that you go back a ways, back to the fifth chapter of John. Now, this is a good bit earlier. This is probably somewhere around a year and a half into his ministry. Because John the Baptist disappeared from the scene about a year and a half into Christ's ministry. And you can prove that from John and correlating things together. This really makes a fascinating study in itself. But in, let's see, John chapter um, 5, verse 18. Now, this, this really shows you the Jews, too. Uh, they, they're hating him because he does something. He does something that's good, but he does it on the Sabbath. Now, let's just say one thing very clearly. The Sabbath did not, pro did not prohibit people from doing things, from having activities. The Sabbath talked about you, you'll do no work on the, on the Sabbath. It was talking about the work you did for a living. If you're a farmer, you didn't go out and start plowing your field. That simple. It didn't mean that you, didn't, that you couldn't go to town and, and uh, buy groceries. It didn't mean that you couldn't go out and play baseball if they played baseball. It meant that what you did for a living, you know, people have misused that. They said, oh, Sunday's a day of rest. It's the Christian Sabbath. Well, first of all, there is no Christian Sabbath, not that kind. And if we didn't want to have a Sabbath, it had to be yesterday, so we've already missed the Sabbath. And there's nothing that prohibits us from doing things. And there was nothing that prohibited the Jews. But here's the whole thing in a nutshell. They, you'll notice verse 16 of John chapter 5. Therefore the Jews did persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What had he done? He had gone down to a man who was 38 years by the pool of Bethesda who couldn't get in the water when it was troubled by an angel. He picked a man who completely was helpless, could do nothing to help himself. And on the Sabbath day he told him, take up your bed. And the man was healed. By the way, what is really sad in that story, if you read through the fifth chapter, you will not find that that man ever thanked Jesus. 38 years he's a cripple, he gets healed, and the only thing he ever does is he tells tale on Jesus. When, when the Pharisees and religious leaders say, why are you walking on the Sabbath? It's, according to, it's against our tradition. Well, what did he tell them? He said, Jesus is the one who told me to do this. He didn't thank him. But he did, he did squeal on him, as we'd say. He did rat on him, as the common language would. And it's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Think about that for just a moment. A man, 38 years, crippled up. And one man says, take up your bed and walk. He does, and he's healed. And what thanks do you get? <laughs> Not much. But you'll notice what it says. Now, this is what they wanted to kill him for because he did it on the Sabbath. It's not that he did something that was wrong. He did something that was right. They would have never argued the fact that this was good. But it was because it was on the Sabbath and their interpretation of the Sabbath. Their interpretation is like a lot of people want to do today. Oh, it's the Lord's Day. It's a day of rest. You don't do anything. Oh, give me a break. Show me where it says that in Scripture. I can show you here. It proves otherwise. It's not, that's not the case. Now, but you'll notice what it says. Therefore, the Jews did persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Now, what you have here is in John, is in John 5... <laughs> 18, it says they sought the more, uh, they sought the more to kill him. They, and, and that word for sought is actually, in, in verse 18, is actually, it's we're seeking. It's a word that means something that started in the past and was still ongoing. 
they were seeking to kill him. So at this point in John 5, they're already seeking to kill him. Well, this is earlier. This is probably somewhere towards about a year and a half into his ministry. Where did it start? Well, I didn't put it in your notes, but as I thought about it, I realized something. If you go back a little further, I want you to go back to the second chapter of John. I'll tell you when they started to hate Jesus and when to kill him. I think I can identify it. I think I can identify it because it's right around the first Passover by the end of the first year. By the end of year one, they already, the Jewish leadership, wanted to kill this man. I think you'll see it here. Because if you go into, into John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand. Now that's one of, there's, there's two references to the first Passover. There's, it's also down in verse 23. But this is telling you when it was. The Jews' Passover was at hand, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changes of money setting. And when he made a scourge of small cords and drove them out of the temple, now stop for a moment. Is this a weak, meek Jesus? Like Jesus is always pictured as this weakling, as meek and humble. Guy takes a whip and he drives Jews away from their money. He got these tables of money. He drives them out. That's an awesome figure. This is no, this Jesus Christ was no wimp. Anybody that ever wants to tell you he was a wimp, he was this meek and mild man of thing, take him here and say, who could make a whip out of cords and drive all of these sellers, all of them, he drove them all, it says he drove them all out and he overturned the money changers, he overturned their money in it. They didn't even come back after the money, he drove them out and he dumped the money out on them. This is no weakling. This Jesus Christ was not, uh, you know, he, in the true sense of the word, he was a real superstar, you might say. He was, he was a man's man. He was no pansy. And he said take, and he said to them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a, ma- a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews. Now here we're going to see the clue. I think this is what tells you when the hatred start. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us that you do these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, Forty and six years was this temple in building, will you rear it up in three days? But this he spake of the temple of his body. Now, why would I say this is where the hatred started? Because they challenged him, he came into their money-making scheme. And these, these religious leaders, they were nothing more than a bunch of merchants. They were, they were in it for the money. Prestige, money, and so Christ came along and interrupted it. And the reason I say that this is when hatred started, because you remember one of the things, the last accusation when Jesus was before in his phony trial. Look over at Mark chapter, just go back a few pages, and I want you to see this, because I think this, when you put this together, this tell me this is when they hated him and decided they wanted to kill him. This was what started it. And everything after that just added fuel to the fire. But they made their minds up at the, by the end of the first year that this man had to go. Because he's not playing our, t- he's not on our team. He's not going with us. He's not playing our game. Mark chapter fourteen. It's here. And let's see, Mark fourteen. Fourteen fifty. Okay, verse fifty-five. There we go. Uh, and the, Mark 14.55 this is a, one of the phony trials because this is a phony trial they were trying to find evidence under Roman law just like under American law and under Jewish law 
You arrested someone not to find something, not to find an accusation, not to find a crime. You arrest someone because there is a crime. You don't go looking for a crime. That's, a, that's what we call banana republic government. It says in the chief priest, verse 55, Mark 14, and the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus Christ to put him to death and found none. You see what they're doing? They didn't have a reason to put him to death, but they're looking for anything. And it says, and it says verse 56, because many bear false witness against him, and their, but their witness did not agree together. And there arose certain and bear witness, false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Where was that spoken? That was spoken back at the first Passover, at the end of his first year of ministry, and that apparently stuck in the craw, so much so that they tried to use that as a reason to put him to death. So what would I say? Jesus was hated, not beginning late in his ministry, beginning very early, at the end of his first year of ministry, even before John, even before Nicodemus came to Jesus. Most of the Jews had already decided they wanted to kill him. Now that's amazing. But, but when you look at scripture, I think you have to, you have to see this is what happened. Now, our time is getting away from us. And, and uh, uh, you can see in the commentary in, in John chapter 13, verse, tw- uh, verse uh, John 3, verse 20. Uh, and we mentioned that, that this, I believe, from John 15, verse and on, is author commentary. Is author, uh, commentary. That's John's words about it. And he's explaining, and we looked at this, and I'm going to just let you read that section because I wanted to go on beyond that and get into some things about how you could see the contempt being shown to Jesus. If we're, 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 going to go, we're going to go to John 8. We're going to skip over the section on John 3. You can read that. We kind of touched on that already, and I don't want to spend time because I don't want to stay here till. So we're going to go to John chapter 8. And I want to show you, you can see this is just so flagrant. To hold somebody in contempt, what would you do if you held them in contempt? Well, this is what you might do. Now, in John chapter 8, look what we have going on here. It says, verse 1, John 8, Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Now notice, the scene is set. He's at the temple, the people come, and he sat down. So I'm in, I'm in good see, see, Brother Bill, I'm in good stead. He sat down to teach. See, that's why I'm sitting. <laughs> that's good excuse, isn't it? But uh, So he sat down to teach. So here you have him teaching. Now notice, and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery and set him in the midst. And they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, tempting him that they might have something to accuse him. Now, we'll stop there for a moment. Now, here's what you have. You have this contempt. Now, you notice I put down here that contempt, to hold something in contempt, that's an attitude. How does the attitude show up? Well, it's, it shows up in an action. So, they hold him in contempt. And what is that contempt going to drive them to do? Well, look what happens. He's teaching. Now, I have never had this happen. Have you ever had this happen, Scott, that someone while you were teaching came in and interrupted you in the middle of it and, and just brought up something that had nothing to do with what you're talking about? They come bustling in? Yeah, when we used to be downtown church. Did that actually happen have, to you? Yeah, we'd have drums come in. Yeah, so you... So, take over. Yeah, so... 
Some of them might have been frustrated Pentecostals, huh? <laughs> I've heard tell that happens. But so, you get the picture then. Here Jesus is teaching, and these, they come bustling, they come right in front of him. He's teaching. You'll notice it says, and, verse 3, begins with and. So it, it indicates that Jesus has sat down, and he's teaching, and, and while he's doing that, these people come right in, and it says, they brought the woman and set her in the midst. They brought her to the front and said, so this is contempt. He's teaching. He wasn't teaching about adultery. I doubt that's what he was teaching about. But they just come bustling right in, and they interrupt him. Now, what is that? I think that's rude. That shows a little bit of contempt. And they interrupt him while he's... And so, this, this whole chapter is a chapter full of just seething with contempt. Now, and if really, and, and when you look at this, there is nothing to indicate that Jesus stopped teaching because of these individuals. They tried to do something. Now, really, what they tried to do, they thought was really pretty shrewd. They thought they were putting Christ on the horns of a dilemma. If Jesus said, stone this woman... You do realize at this point the Jews did not have the, per the permission to, to carry out the death penalty. They had to get it from Rome. Why do you think they took, why do you think they took Jesus to, to Pilate? To get permission to put him to death. So they couldn't do it. So if Jesus had stoned her, they would go running off. The Jews would go running off and say to the Roman, Look, listen to this guy. He's, he's, he's breaking the law. He's doing this. Well, then if he said not to stone her, then they go running off to the Sanhedrin. The big Jewish council say, Hey, hey, he's not keeping the law. They, they thought for sure they had him. They thought they had him on a horns of dilemma, but boy, I'll tell you, this is another one of those render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Look, what did Jesus say? He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He who that is, verse 7, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they say he, he was writing on the ground, then it says, verse 8, he stooped and wrote down again. You know, I wonder what he was writing. I was wondering if he wrote the woman's name and then he wrote after that clients and started writing names on there. And these guys' names were along those lists. I mean, if they caught the woman in the very act, tell me, how did they catch the woman in the very act? How do you catch somebody in the act of having a sexual intercourse? Well, that's what I was thinking about. I read that the first time. Like, okay, did they actually walk in on them? <laughs> well, actually what it was was probably one of those was a customer, a paying customer. Oh. One of the, and when he's writing the names, and I, I, this is my thought. Now, I know that there's a lot of different opinions, so this is just, take my opinion, is worth a nickel. Maybe not even, Joe, not even that much. Inflation, <laughs> cut it down. But my idea is, I think he's writing names down there. He wrote the woman's name, then he wrote these names. He's writing names down there. And these were people that were her customers. And these guys, their conscience, it says their conscience got them. Well, why did their conscience get them? It says that in verse 9. It says, when they heard it, they were convicted by their own conscience. Why? Because their names were written down on the ground as customers, paying customers. Some of them probably had an easy pay program. They just swiped their credit card on the way in, you know. So this shows you what these people are like. And so you talk about rude. Now they interrupt them. So you notice that Jesus didn't stop teaching. When the woman, he, the woman is there and says, where are your accusers? And so after that in verse 12, it says, then he spoke again unto them. Now, he spoke again unto them. He's not speaking again unto the, the Jews because they left. He's speaking again unto the people as he did in the first verse. He went right back to teaching. They came in. They tried to interrupt him. They tried to discredit him. They tried to... They were, they were showing their contempt by making him look stupid or putting him in a dilemma and showing the people, this guy is a terrible lawbreaker. And he got around that and he just went right on teaching. Well, you know what? You go down through here and look at it again. Verse, so in verse 12... He says, 
Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have light of, light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, so apparently they came back. You bear record of yourself. Your record is not true. What are they doing? They're trying to discredit him. Oh, you've got to have more than one witness according to the law. Well, he's going to go on and explain that he does have another witness, God the Father. But you'll notice he says, I am the light of the world. Now, that statement, I am, that could also be taken in John 8, 12 as a title. Because Jesus used I am. And when you see John 8, 58, when he said I am, he was claiming to be deity. He was claiming to be the I am of Exodus 3.14. Because if you remember Exodus 3.14, when Moses said, well, who, who, who shall I tell the people of Israel sent me? You tell them I am has sent me. And when Jesus said I am in John 8.58 and other places, they got the message he was the God of the burning bush. And yes, he was. The second person of the Godhead was in that burning bush. That was the one that was there. Now, it's very possible here in verse 12 that he said, I am, using it as a title of deity because it's the same word order, the same construction. And I suspect personally, now not everybody would agree with me on this. Some scholars will, some won't. But I think at this point he's saying, I am is the light of the world. He's introducing himself as deity. I am is the light of the world. And the reason I would say that is because a little bit further down in this chapter, you're going to find out in verse 24, I think he's introducing himself as deity because he's going to say in verse 24 very, very directly, he said, verse 24, John 8, I said, unto you, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sins. Now leave that italicized he out. That's not there. It's not in the Greek. It obscures things. If you do not believe I am, you'll die in your sins. While Christ was on earth, they had to believe to be saved. They had to believe that he was deity in flesh. So that's why I say John 8, 12, when he says, I am is the light of the world. He's telling you who he is. He's telling, they didn't see it. They missed the point. I'm not surprised because they were just bent on destruction. They were bent on <coughs> criticizing him. But he claimed to be deity before them. And they didn't get it. But he came back in verse 24, unless you believe. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't know why they didn't catch it in verse 24, but they didn't react there. But there's no doubt when he says, unless you believe that I am, there's no doubt what he's saying. You had to believe he was deity. He was God in flesh. But they wouldn't do it. Now, when you go down through here, and for the sake of time, well, we, we, can, we can go down and look at this again. So, he's going, so he starts teaching again. They immediately challenge him saying, oh, well, your witness is not good enough. What are they trying to do to this man? By interrupting him, by bringing up trivial points, they're trying to embarrass him, they're trying to make him look stupid, they're trying to discredit him, they're trying to do anything. Why? Yeah, they'll trip him up. Why? Because they hold him in contempt. They want him to go away, and the only way he's going to go away is if they do it. That's their estimate. We've got to get rid of this guy, and the people are listening to him, so what are we going to do? We'll go out there and make him look stupid. We'll go out there and contradict him. We'll go out there and challenge him. We'll make him look like a lawbreaker in the first part. Then a little bit later they get on and they, they stooped. How bad does it get? You want to see how bad it gets? Look at verse 22. Let's see, wait a minute. No, let's see, hold a second. Da, 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 no. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. A little bit further down. Uh, I'm skipping into my notes a little bit. Let's see. Uh, verse, yeah, verse 22. Wait a minute, it says. 33? Probably 33 is the one I'm looking for. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's part of it. Verse 33 is part of it. 
It says, we're Abraham's seed. We're never in bondage to any man. How shall you say, how can you say you shall be made free? Now, Jesus has just been interrupted at a very important point where he was telling them how to be, that they were in the future, those who believed on him, and those were some individuals that uh, in here, they actually did believe in him. And in the future, he said, you'll notice he said uh, to them back in verse 32, he says, and you shall know the truth, the future tense verb, and, and the truth shall make you free. He was looking forward to that which would happen after the day of Pentecost, the provision that we have, but what Scott's been teaching about in the Christian life. Those provisions were going to come in the future. And he was telling his individuals, you stay, you keep following me, verse 32, you stay as my disciples, and in the future you're going to find out the truth of how you can be made free. Free from what? Verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth the sin is the slave of the sin. Yeah, there's a definite article in there before both of them. The sin. He's talking about the sin nature. What Jesus said, if you stay, if they kept following him, after the day, there would come the day when they would know the truth of how to be free from the sin nature. You find that in Romans 6. Now, in the middle of saying that, they flat out, the, the ridiculous, has said, verse 33, we're Abraham's seed, we're never going to anyone. Oh, really? How about 400 years in Egypt? How about who's ruling them now? The city of Rome ruled these people with an iron fist. They couldn't do anything without Roman permission. They couldn't do hardly anything. Oh, their religious stuff, the Jews, the Romans would let them have their religious nonsense because they knew that it was nonsense. But they couldn't do anything. And here these people have the how stupid. We were never in bondage to anyone? Oh, really? Are you stupid? Or are you really stupid? Or are you even worse than really stupid? Yeah, read the Old Testament. You, you know, just read the Bible. And then now they're really going to get nasty. They, then they get to that, uh, verse 39. They're going to start something, they're going to repeat it twice, and it's, it's just plain, it's just name calling. It said, They answered and said unto him, Abraham's our father. Now, what are they hinting at there? And then Jesus said unto them, if, Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Yeah. So then you skip down a little bit further. Uh, he said, uh, where is it? I'm, I'm skipping over what I'm looking for. Where it says we have a Samaritan. Well, they did, they did get down to calling him name. Verse 48, they wind up, here's where they're at. Then the Jews answered and said unto him, Say we not well that you're a Samaritan and have a devil? You're demon-possessed half-breed. Now, if you know your Gospels, the Jews hated the Gentiles. But you know who they hated more than the Gentiles? Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They hated, for whatever reason, they hated them more. And so they're down to the point all they can do is sling mud at Jesus. This is how much contempt they have. They've, they're out of arguments. They can't answer anything he said. So what do they do? They throw mud in his face and say, Yeah, your father was a Samaritan. Oh, really? You have a devil. Really? Where's the proof? You know, they, they, they couldn't do anything to do that. So, uh, they, they, see, they, they alluded to the insult back in verse 41. You'll notice it says, You do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, we were not born of fornication. So in other words, Mary committed fornication with a Gentile or with a, with a Samaritan. That's what they were saying. That's what they stooped to. That's how far. Now, if I were to say to you, they showed contempt for Jesus, would you agree with me now? 
The eighth chapter, if there's one lesson in the eighth chapter, it shows you how far they would go. They would stoop to the point of accusing him of being a half-breed that had a devil. It was a demon-possessed. That's what you call contempt. Now, I think if the world would do that to Jesus, well, as we close then, so what do you expect? Well, we should expect, and we do, that the world's going to hate the Christian the way that they hated the world, but not the way that people think of hate. It's they're going to hold us in contempt. So don't be surprised if, as a spiritual believer, you've, you detect that people have this, are acting funny towards you only to find out that they're talking behind your back. Don't be surprised. It says it's going to happen. But you know, when I think of what price Jesus Christ paid when they drove the nails through his hands, when they put that crown of thorns on him, when they flogged him before he even went out. In fact, he was, he was so weak and so badly beaten. The same man who drove all those guys out of the temple was so badly beaten, they had to get someone to carry the cross for him. That was not done. Normally, the man carried his cross up and they put him on it. He was so badly beaten that they picked that, well, that one man that came by and had him carry the cross for Jesus. When you think of all the things he went through, how big a deal is it if I get a little contempt and you get a little contempt? We should expect it. And it's a small price to pay. But I say these things because don't be surprised. You're going to find that the world does have contempt for you. And eventually it's going to start showing up in the press. They're going to have contempt for Christians in general. And it won't be behind your back any longer. We'll probably live to see that. But then again, it's such a small price to pay when we remember what Jesus did. Let's pray, shall we? Father, once again today... We're humbled when we realize the price that Jesus Christ paid for us on the cross, the awful death he died, the mocking and the scourging he had, all of the contempt that was dumped upon him and heaped upon him, how they planned practically for the end of his first year of ministry. The last two years were probably all with the Jews conspiring, looking for anything they could find to get him on the cross. All of that time, he put up with all of that suffering, all of that suffering, even before he got to the cross, and the shame, and the, and Father, if he's like the rest of us humans are, Jesus in his humanity must have felt really unpleasant about it. It must have really been uncomfortable, and it must have been something that was just very depressing for him. And yet he put up with all of these things because he came to do your will, Father. And part of that will was that he would endure those things and then go to the cross. And he paid an enormous price, Father. Today we realize that if we are going to be faithful to scripture, faithful to our position in Christ, faithful to living as we'd ought to, then the world is also going to hold us in contempt, just like it held Jesus in contempt. But Father, that's such a small price to pay when we look at it the right way. Our Savior paid a much higher price. May we be encouraged in these things and challenged, Father, not to back off from our Christian testimony, but simply to recognize we're going to pay a price. So be it. Bless us now in these things we ask in our Savior's name. Amen.